So like, we're, we are in 1 Corinthians. Um, we're not going to rehash too much of a review. Phil did a great job last week of getting us started and setting the stage, looking at uh, the church in Corinth, the city. Um, but, but as a way of, of introduction and, and a few observations that I've kind of made um, through my study, I wanted to share um, just, and it's nothing, nothing groundbreaking, but uh, as I've been preparing to study, there's been some things that kind of just jumped out at me and that have helped me to remember as, as I'm going through, uh, through, through this, this letter. And the first, the first thing I want to just kind of call out as we're, as we're starting our, our study this quarter is a reminder that this is a letter. This is a letter. It's a correspondence from Paul to, uh, to, to the church at Corinth. And I know that's kind of obvious. But reminding myself of that at times helps me to, to keep things in context, to keep things in context, understanding the, the, the relationship that Paul had with the Corinthians and the time he spent with them. We know there were other correspondence and visits between uh, various people uh, related to, to the church there. And, and, and it help, helps to remember that, that this, is, this is part of an ongoing relationship between Paul and, and the, the church at Corinth there. Um, but also, it's not just any letter, but chapter 4, verse 14, 14 tells us it's a letter written from the point of view of a father to children, to his children. And it's, it's written, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And so he's offering these corrections that we see uh, out, of, out of love. He's not trying to break them down. He's not leaving to them, them to their own devices as if they were hopeless and there's no way for them to get out of the situations that they're in. But he is, he, he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of what they believed originally. And he's giving them a path back to how they should be and helping to guide their action just like a father would to their child. And so that, that has kind of helped me, uh, again, it, it going through this study. And, and just a reminder, more than anything else, of, of the context of the letter that we are, we are looking at. Last week, like I said, Phil, Phil has an introduction to the city of Corinth, some of the unique challenges that, that they had. Um, we're, we're not going to, to dive deep in there, but, let's, but, but it's safe to say that Corinth was a challenging city to, to be a new Christian in. And as a new church with uh, uh, not, not very experienced uh, uh, Christians, they, they had a lot of challenges and a lot of, a lot of things they had to work through. And, and we had a list of, I believe there were 11 or 12 problems that were surfacing in the church because of these challenges that they had, be, uh, because of some of the, some of the situ- situations that they, that they faced. But... When we jumped into the content of the letter and we looked at verses, the first nine verses of the book, Paul's kind of introduction here, Paul was thankful. He was optimistic about the church and the Christians there and what, 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 what they had at their disposal, what, what they had available to them and what they were able to do. And, uh, and then we, we looked briefly last week at uh, the problems, uh, a problem that had been reported, the divisions and the factions, and, 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 uh, and what, was, what was happening because of that and what was the, what was the source of that. And that's where we're going to pick up today. In just a moment, we're going to pick up in verse 18 and, and, and finish up chapter 1 and, and move ahead. Um, but before, before we do that, I wanted to suggest to you 
um, and, and give a quick high-level overview that chapters 1 through 4 really form a cohesive unit of thought. And it, it forms this, this, this thought around, uh, around that the Christ, Christians in Corinth have put their faith in the wrong place. They have misplaced their faith. They are they're putting their focus and, and their thoughts in, in the wrong spot. And looking at, at I've read, read the, the letter several times, seeing, seeing this, and this seems to be kind of a keystone to the rest of the book. It, it seems to be the, an, an introduction to, to, to the rest of what he's going to be talking about. Because they, they are putting their faith in, in men and not in the gospel of Christ where it should be. And so I want to briefly take a look at how he go, how from a high level what he covers in these four chapters, what arguments he makes, um, and, and see how that how these kind of tie together before we dive into to uh, to, to the text in, in chapter one here. Um, but the subject is the gospel of Christ, and and he is he's saying you've misplaced your faith. You need to go back to the gospel of Christ. And we see that in chapter one, verse four, where he's giving thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of the God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He is thankful for that grace of God. He's thankful for what they have received, the the, the gospel, and and he mentions that. The completeness of their spiritual needs is because of the gospel. He is turning them back to what they first believed. The fact that they were complete, they, they, uh, in every way they were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, they weren't lacking any gifts. But they had what they needed to be, to be guiltless, to be found guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was all done through the grace and the power of God, through the gospel of Christ. And he's, he's pointing them back. He's saying, look, this is where you came from. This is what you, what you need to, what you first believed. And you have, were given everything that you need because of it. And moving to chapter 2, we're going to look at it a little bit in verses 1 through 5. That the foundation of their faith, again, was based in the gospel of Christ. That was what they first believed. That was how they came to be Christians, was the gospel of Christ. That was the foundation. So he's reminding them of that. And in verses 1 through 5, he's saying, I, I taught nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And verse 5, so that their faith may rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. And that's what they had learned. That's what they had been taught. That's what they had believed. And that's the foundation that they need to return to. And, uh, and, and he's making that point. And then the third thing we see is when we get to chapter 4, we see there's a unique relationship that they have with Paul. And this relationship is because of the gospel, because of what he came to do, because of how he came to teach. And, and, and again, going back to 4 verse 14, I admonish you as a father. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So imitate me. And so, so he, they have this relationship uh, that is how their faith should be built, right? They uh, started with acknowledging where their spiritual needs were fulfilled from, they, uh, what they had originally received and believed, and it's only because of those first two pieces that they had this relationship with Paul. Now, why is he bringing this up? Why is he bringing this idea up about the gospel? Well, it's because of what we see in chapter 1 uh, around the divisions and the strife that is resulting from their overestimation of men. They are they're saying, I am of Paul, I am of, of Paulos, I am of Cephas. And they're dividing and they're, they're choosing sides, if you will. 
And that's the reason why he's having to bring up the idea of the gospel. He's having to remind them where they came from and what this foundation was. And he's, he's telling them that Christ and him crucified is where their faith should rest, not in the messengers who taught it as we get through to chapter 4. So their foundation is, is the gospel. They are, they are causing strife and divisions because they're overestimating men. They're putting their faith in men and, and things of this world. And that's not where it should rest. Their, their faith should rest in the gospel of Christ, not the people who are bringing it. And I, I thought this was kind of an interesting look at it, and I know it gets kind of small down at the bottom, but we see where their faith was. Their faith was put in Paul, in Peter, in Apollos, in men. They, their identity was found in this worldly wisdom. In the, that, that was where their foundation was, that where, they, where they were going off of. That, that, and that was causing each person to choose who and what they wanted to follow and identify themselves with one person over the other. And it was all about themselves, right? That's a very worldly concept, that it's all about themselves and their and what, what fits them best, what they like. They, they prefer Apollos, or I, I prefer Peter, right? And they, they're making the, those, those statements. Um, and that's resulting in this division, and this strife, and this jealousy, and this, uh, this, this uh, pride that we see Paul having to address. But he's, he's telling them through these first four chapters that that's not where your faith should be. Your faith should not be in men, but your faith instead should be in the gospel of Christ. And that's where your identity is. That's where your foundation should be. That's where it was. You originally believed that. And that gospel of Christ is what supplies everything you need to be saved. It's not about what you want. It's not about your preferences, but you, are, you have everything you need to be complete through this gospel. And their faith should result in unity and being of the same mind and of the same judgment. And so I wanted to kind of go through that quick high-level concept. This gospel, it's not, it's not rhetoric, it's not philosophy, it's not worldly wisdom that they should be placing their faith in, but it's the gospel. It's the word. It, everything that we are in Christ is the result of the grace of God and the gospel. Everything that our faith is built on is the gospel. Everything, uh, the, the only thing that makes Paul and Apollos and Peter worth following and giving their attention to is the fact that they're teaching the gospel. It's not that Apollos is a great speaker and orator and, and Paul performed some great miracles and, you know, Peter was an original apostle, so I really, I, I prefer, prefer him. You know, it's not, it's not the, these, these aspects, but it, it's because they teach the gospel, that is why they deserve our attention and, and respect the, for the Corinthians. And, and that's what Paul is talking about as a whole over these four chapters. He's bringing their minds back to the gospel. He is reminding them that is where their faith should be placed and that they've missed the mark by placing their faith in men and thinking uh, of things of the world. Um, any, any comments before we jump into, into the text? Bruce. I always, when I read 1 Corinthians, go back to Isaiah, the first chapter, in verse 18, where he said, the Lord says, come, let us reason together. And you'd, you'd mentioned that, you know, probably if we had 
walked into this congregation and seen all that was going on, we'd just say, you need to close the doors and quit. But here Paul is reasoning with them about this Greek philosophy, about the Jewish uh, imposition of the law, and he's uh, debating with them as to which is actually uh, solid ground. Uh, he talks about philosophy. He talks about oratory, which they had a great uh, belief in. Uh, but it must have hurt Paul to write this letter because he'd spent so much time with them, but he doesn't use anger. And I think that's one point that uh, as we read this book, when we confront people in error or confront people who have gone away, we should uh, reason with them, involve them in the discussion, and uh, talk about things rather than becoming uh, angry. Uh, there's a time to be angry and there's a time not to be, but uh, here reasoning uh, is a wonderful thought in dealing with uh, scriptural error. Thank you. I, really good point. And it really is. He. He does. He spends time developing arguments. He spends time giving background information, giving reminders, and, and, and kind of a, a flow of, of logic as, as he goes through. And so I, I appreciate that comment, and it is, it is something that we should, we should strive to model as we see in, in Paul. All right, so, so I want to pick up our—oh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to say, because he does it in love, Second Corinthians proves because he does it in love and they— they may have been angry or whatever when they said it, but, you know, sometimes when you sit down and think about it, think about the truth versus what you're doing, you come to repentance. And in Second Corinthians, they thank him for what he did, and they tell him how much they appreciate this lady who wrote this letter and how much they are grateful that he led them the right way. And once they started thinking about it, they realized to repent. So that's a really good point about what Bruce said. You don't do it out of anger, you do it out of love, because you can't convert anybody when you're angry. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely right. And, and we see that love through, through the way he communicates. So let's go ahead and, and jump into to, to the text, and, and we'll, we'll start in, in chapter 1 and where we left off last week, verse 18. And what, what Paul goes into, he's just finished. He, he's given his thanksgiving for, for all, everything they need for their spiritual needs. Uh, they, they have everything through the gospel. He's talked about the divisions that, that they're having. He says, hey, I found out you guys are quarreling about, about the, these divisions. You're, you're, you're taking sides over men, and, and that's not good. I appeal to you for unity. I appeal to you to be of the same mind and the same judgment. And so he then goes on to, 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 to talk about the word of, of the cross, the, the gospel that they came and taught. And, and he, he, in, in, in the effort to remind them of the gospel and to, to bring them back to it, he, he's coming to them and he spends the rest of this idea talking about whether that message was wise or foolish. And depending on your point of view, you could answer it both ways, right? Depending on where you're coming from. And think about the context. The Corinthians had... Uh, you know, only a few years ago embraced a message of redemption um, through a crucified Savior. That's a radical idea at this time, something that, that it, just a very small subset of people were believing. 
And the, the people at Corinth, they, they took that on. They, they took that belief. But what did the world think of that? Foolishness. That, that's the craziest thing they've ever heard. And especially in Corinth where they are focused on philosophies of men and, and great thinking and great, great ideas and, and, and all of these things. This, this was a, a crazy thing to, to, to try to believe and, and to think through. And I think that probably put a lot of pressure on the Christians there at Corinth, the, these new Christians. That would have put a lot of pressure uh, to, to go back to their old ways of following these individual men, right? They're used to following these philosophers who are speaking in the, in the town square and, you know, aligning themselves with the philosophy of this person or that person. And so they're, they're going to fall back into that because of this pressure. Um, maybe they're being talked down about in the culture dialogue. Like, can you believe those Christians over there and the things they're talking about? And the, can you believe they even believe that? That's crazy. And, and so there's a lot of this pressure that, that, that they're under. And basically Paul's saying, look, I know what we preach doesn't make sense to the world, but that's by design. That, 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 that's God's design that it doesn't make sense to the, Lord, to, to the world. And God in his infinite divine wisdom chose to use, chose not to use worldly wisdom in the, the things that he, in, in, in the way that he's saving the world in this plan. But instead, something that makes no sense to the world, it's foolish to the world. And why is that the case? Why did God choose that? Verse 29 tells us that it's so that no human can boast in the presence of the Lord. He's saying God does not want anyone to be able to use their own wisdom, their own might. He doesn't want anyone to think that this is their doing. But he's, made, he, he's presenting something in a foolish way to the world so that no one can boast. It, it can only be God that can make this happen through, a, through Christ being crucified. Only God could make this happen. And... and so that is, that is the reasoning Paul gives here. Not in their own wisdom, not their own logic, but those, that are, those who believe and are saved, they know that this could only be done by God. And so verse 18 through 25, to the perishing, this message is folly. It's foolishness. Those in the world who put their faith in men um, and, and worldly wisdom, they view this message as foolishness, right? But to us being saved, it's the opposite. It's the power of God. And, and let me ask, how would whether one viewed a thing as wise or foolish affect where he would place his confidence. If, if, if someone were to, 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 to view something as wise or foolish, how would that affect where their confidence is being placed, where they're putting their faith? You know, if something seems foolish, well, why would I put my confidence in that? Because it's only going to fail. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. You're not going to be confident in something that you believe is foolish. You're not going to give it the time of day. It doesn't match up with what you believe, what your current experiences are, what the culture around you believes. So you're not going to put your faith in that. On the flip side of that, if something is credible and there, you see wisdom in it and you see, uh, you know, it aligns with your values and beliefs and things that you're taught, then you're going to value that. You're going to be confident in that and you're, you're going to fight and fight for that. You're going to be willing to argue that. And I think, you know, Paul sets up his case here for putting their faith and trust in the gospel. And 
he uses two kind of opposites in, in, this, in this area. He uses two kind of opposites, the, the perishing versus the saved, and then their point of view, the, fool, the, the it's foolishness or, or, um, or, or wisdom there, or, or power, I'm sorry. But what is significant about the idea of perishing versus being saved here is right away Paul is taking this to a kind of a spiritual argument. He, he, he's right away, the, the world looks at this as foolishness. The world looks at this as, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. But Paul is taking this to a spiritual level about perishing and being in, in, in those who are saved. And in the context of this misplaced faith, there are two types of people. The, those who are dying spiritually and those who are going to be saved, and they both look at the gospel in different ways. The, those who are dying, those who are perishing, they have no hope. They are not thinking on a spiritual level. So Jesus being raised from the dead, that doesn't make any sense. That, that, that's not going to register with them. And a future resurrection for them makes no sense. It just sounds like a bunch of, of nonsense, foolishness, right? Um, but for those who, who will be saved, those who are already thinking on, on the spiritual level and they have been taught the truth and see the connections that, that, that have been made by, by Paul and others, they're, they're looking forward to eternity. They, they have hope. And so when they view the, view the gospel, they see the wisdom in God's plan. They, see, uh, they, they, they not only see the wisdom, they hope in it, and they base their lives on it, and their thoughts and their actions and everything that goes along with it. They, they recognize that it's, it's power. It's not foolishness, but it's power. It's active. It's going to result in something. Alan? And Paul's very intentional, I think, in 18, where he says the word of the cross. You know, he could say the word of the Son. He could say the word of so many other ways to describe the gospel. But in 18, he's talking about the cross. In 23, he'll, he'll bring up the crucifixion again. And that's really the problem, right? There, people would not be so opposed to Jesus' healing of the sick because that is great. Everyone is on board for that. Jesus is teaching about giving provisions to people who need it, visiting those in prison. People are ready to put their arms around that. But the cross is a big problem, especially because of the implications that it has for us that would follow Jesus, that Jesus really meant it when he said, you also have crosses that I will need you to pick up and carry as well. And, that, and he is, he, Paul really seems to want to, to establish this foundation because if we can establish Jesus went to the cross and we are to take up ours. Now we can talk about fleeing immorality and being defrauded by our brothers and not taking them to court because we've established this is what the gospel is really calling us to. And so the cross itself, both, like you said, people struggled with, did this even happen that he would die and be raised? But also what it implies for us that's not attractive to our earthly reason, right? And that doesn't exactly draw people in. But for those of us that recognize the, the saving power of the cross, then, yeah, we, we will be um, emboldened by that and encouraged by that. Absolutely. Thank you.
Um, he, he goes on and he talks about Jews and Greeks and, and, and those who are called. He, he kind of expands his argument a little bit. Jews, they want to see signs, referring back to the Pharisees, asking Jesus to, to give us a sign. Greeks, they seek wisdom. Um, but we preach Christ crucified the gospel, exactly the things that we've been talking about. And that's a stumbling block to the Jews. That's folly to the, to, to the Greeks. It makes no sense to them. Um, the, one of the things I think is interesting here in verse... Uh, uh, where was it? I lost my spot. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks in verse, uh, in, in verse 24, where it doesn't matter your background. You're, you're not stuck as a Jew. You're not stuck as a, as a Greek. It doesn't matter your background and what is a stumbling block to you. You can overcome that and you can, be, you can think spiritually. This can make sense and be wise wisdom to you. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be. And I thought that was an interesting, um, interesting kind of, kind of, kind of message in there. Um, but, but we've got this idea. He, he talks about the Jews, the Greeks, and those who are called. And verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I think that's a great statement, um, a great kind of, kind of a humbling statement when, when you look at that and, and, and think about God and his wisdom. It brings to mind passages like Isaiah 55, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, and realizing our, our, uh, you know, our insignificance in, 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 in our thinking and our wisdom versus God. Um, we not, don't have time to read it, but I, I'd call your attention to James chapter 3, um, verse 13 through 17, where James talks about wisdom of the earth versus wisdom from above and what results in that. Because I think there's some comparison there to what we're seeing be the fruits from, uh, from the Corinthian Christians uh, coming. So, so I would recommend looking at that. But then he ends this section here by saying, consider your own calling in, in you know, he uses the brethren themselves as evidence. He's talked about Jews, talked about Greeks, he's talked about what they've preached. And now consider, consider yourself, your own calling. Look around at yourselves. Most of you didn't come from the top echelons of society. Most of you, you know, and, and the few that did, did it really help your social standing that now you're saying you believe in Christ? No, to, to the world, this is foolishness, right? It, and you know yourself, you've experienced that. But instead, God chose what is foolish and weak in the world to shame the wise and the strong, so that no human can boast. And that, that's where, where he, that, that's kind of the, the, the end statement here, that no human can boast, uh, and that's the goal. Uh, and, and it made me think about the, the people that Jesus spent time teaching, right? Who, who did Jesus go and talk to? It was, it was the lowly. It was the, 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 the riffraff of the community, right? And that didn't make sense to the people, that, that was foolishness to the Jewish leaders that Jesus would go spend time there. And I think we're seeing that same type of attitude here in the, in the Greek and Roman societies here where, where they're, you know, th- this doesn't make sense. It's, it's, the, it's the lowly of the society who, are, who is believing this and, and, and it, it, it's foolish. So, so as we end chapter 1, one question that I, that I have in is what is the wisdom of God? He, he talks a lot about the wisdom of God, the foolishness of men. What is the wisdom of God? Christ Jesus. Yeah, ver, ver, verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so all, all of this, when it comes down to it, 
You are called because God chose not the wisdom of the world, but foolishness. You are in Christ Jesus, Paul is saying. You have received righteousness. You have been sanctified. You have been redeemed. You have hope and will be saved, not perished like the foolish. And so we see that that kind of brings chapter 1 to a close. Any thoughts on chapter 1 as we before we jump into 2? All right, a couple over. Isn't it basically a matter of pride, um, where we will stand, where we, how we will view the wisdom of God? Because there's no, there's nothing that is um, can be associated with pride. If I humble myself to accept uh, not not a king as my leader, but a, a crucified man, um, and and so all of this is showing that the the pull of pride and the way of pride will influence how they think, how, who they try to find their identity in. But really, the, the fact of the matter is what, they're, what Paul is trying to get them to do is humble themselves, and, and then they will have their identity in the right place and in, in all the right things. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and this is just building off of what many people have said already, but uh, verse 18 kind of gives us a, a binary choice. It's either this or this. Um, either we are perishing or we are being saved by the power of God. So, and, and he talks about the wisdom of this age and what Jews seek and what Gentiles seek, but um, even for us today, we can have difficulty just reading simply what the word says and following it because that doesn't make sense to my brain. Mm-hmm. And we have to, then, then we have a choice. And it's right here. Do we, do we follow what the Bible says, even without understanding why, or do we perish? And, and that, it, he, he brings it very simply, boils it down very nicely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you made that point because it is, it is a simple, simple question of how, how we view it, right? But the, the culture we're in, the environment we're in, the, the expectations of society around us and people that we know, that all plays into our viewpoint in that decision. So it, it gets muddy for us, but the, the decision doesn't really change. We, we have to work through that and, and put, go back to the foundation, what we were taught and what we believed. Thank you. All right, um, moving on to chapter 2. The foundation of their faith, um, the, this is where uh, he's, he's going back. I, I personally think verse 5 of chapter 2 is kind of the, the key verse of this entire section. This is the goal of, uh, of what he is trying to do. Uh, so, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That, that's what, that, that's what he, the argument that he's making here and what, what he's trying to do by going to teach. And what we see here in the first five verses of chapter 2 is how he goes about doing that. He, he, he lays out, this is what I did to do these things, uh, to, to accomplish this goal. And what's interesting is he repeats a lot of the same things. He, he's already said some of these things. He said, I came to you to, not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And in chapter 117, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He said what he's already, he's already said that, right? So he's emphasizing that. But one of the things he's doing is, is uh, referring not only to the content of his preaching here and that that was intentional, it was an intentional choice of what he preached, but he's also going to talk about how he came to them and the way he preached and the way he taught. And so verse 1, 
we see that he came not with lofty speech or wisdom. Again, going back to chapter 1, verse 17, a repeat of that idea. He didn't come with, with, with grand speech. He's not a great orator. He didn't come with uh, putting on a show, right? He came uh, not with that, but his intention was only to teach them Jesus and, and uh, him crucified. That was the entire purpose. That was, all of his teaching was focused around that singular goal. Um, verse 3 and 4 then go into how he, he went about that. And he came, he was there with weakness and fear and trembling. Not exactly a great stature to be in if you're trying to, to have a lot of charisma and, and encourage people to follow you, right? If you're trembling and, and weak um, in, in the way that, that, that you're, you're there. But despite... Whatever shortcomings that may be, whatever that looked like, his weakness and trembling there, he was able to demonstrate through the spirit and the power that the things he was saying was true. And so he had that backing him up uh, as, he, as he preached to them. And I couldn't help but think about Acts 18, and we, we went through that in great detail uh, last quarter. Um, and, you know, looking at the idea that many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized, but then one, one night the Lord came to him and said... Don't, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Go on doing what you need to do. Don't be silent because I'm with you. No one's going to attack you. No one is going to, to hurt you because there are many in the city that, 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 are, that are my people. Paul, at some point, needed this reassuring uh, while he was there. There was some point where Paul was scared and, and worried about, about what was going on. Maybe there was a planned attack, maybe, whatever it was. And the Lord said this. And again, not an ideal environment if you're hoping to win people over with your great words and your great charisma and attitude. But instead, he had the power of the Lord with him. He had the power of the Spirit to confirm his testimony uh, with with those demonstrations. And I think when I look at this, these, these verses here, this makes a really great checklist for anybody who wants to teach someone about Christ and bring them to them. Um, and a really great, great kind of a mental checklist. What, what, is, what is the goal? Well, the goal is so their faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Anybody we teach about the gospel, anybody we want to bring, bring to, to Jesus and teach about them, that should be our goal. Don't rely on the world. Don't rely on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, right? Um, on the wisdom of God. And how do we accomplish that? Well, you turn to the truth. You don't do anything other than the truth. You teach Christ crucified. And that be intentional about that. Um, and, and we have the word, we have the message, we have the truth. We also have demonstrations of the, of the spirit and, and of power. We have those examples recorded for us so we can go back to that. Um, we, we don't see on this list that I came to you with free donuts. I came to you with fog machines and lasers. I came to you with Easter egg hunts and brewery tours and all sorts of other, other ways to attract you to, to the gospel. That's not how I, how I came to you. I came to you not with eloquent speech. I came to you not with the wisdom of the world, but intentional about uh, teaching Jesus Christ to you. And then he switches gears a little bit. We're, we're still on the topic of the wisdom of, of Christ or the wisdom of God. But in verse 6, we, we have a little bit of a switch where he then goes into talking about the true wisdom of God and what, what, he, um, and, and what, that, what that is and, and that they actually are speaking from wisdom. They, they have wisdom that they are speaking. Because up until now, from, verse, from 118 to, to now, Paul has been painting some, some real 
vivid contrast between wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And he's emphasizing this problem of misplaced faith. And he's really, you know, kind of, he's made the case that human wisdom has no spiritual value. Wisdom has no, no spiritual value. It's not appealing at all to those who are called uh, and, and those who are spiritual, spiritually minded. And if we stopped reading there, we might think Paul is just full of nonsense. Like, he, he doesn't care about wisdom. He, he's not trying to make a logical case. He's not trying to reason. He's just saying there, wisdom is, is pointless. But... Here he comes in, and he kind of flips the script a little bit, and he makes the case that, that uh, the wisdom and folly that he was using wor- earlier, earlier he's using the wisdom uh, in the world's eyes, and Paul painted that wisdom as a bad thing, and they saw the wisdom of God as foolishness. Now he's about to say that the gospel of the crucified Messiah, it's wisdom all right, but it is uh, not the kind of wisdom the Corinthians were pursuing not the kind of wisdom that they were looking for and expecting. It's a different kind of wisdom. So verse 6, he says, we do speak wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age. It, it, it didn't originate here, didn't originate with man, but it was, it was created long before at a different level, a different, different plan. It's a different level of wisdom that, that we speak. Um, what's going to happen to the wisdom that was created of this age? It's going, to be, it's going to perish. It's going to be done away with. It's going to pass away. But this wisdom will not because it wasn't created in this age. And, and so, so he makes the point that this is a higher wisdom that we preach than that of the world. Uh, verse 7, God's wisdom was contained in a mystery. It was not revealed, but it existed and was planned long before the beginning of the ages. So he's saying this was planned long ago. God planned this wisdom. Verse 8, this wisdom was unknown before now. Up until this point, no one knew this wisdom. And in fact, I think this is fascinating. In fact, if people knew this wisdom, if they recognized what this wisdom was and what was going to occur, they would not have crucified the Lord. And I think that, that's just a really interesting point. That would have been a major problem if people knew the wisdom and Christ was not crucified. Because if Christ was not crucified then God's entire plan would be done, done away with. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked the way he had planned. Imagine what would have happened if Satan knew God's plan. He would have done everything in his power to keep Christ from being crucified. He would have done everything in his power to keep Christ alive. If he knew that was the way that God was going to save mankind and, and, and deliver them from him. So God had to keep it hidden until the right time. And it makes me think of Jesus when he's saying, the time is not right. You know, there were several occasions where he said, this is not my time. The time was not right. They couldn't know the plan yet. They couldn't know the wisdom. But now, uh, the Spirit has searched the mind of God, verses 10 through 12, to find this hidden wisdom. And it has now been revealed. And this is the wisdom that they are now teaching and imparting. uh, These words that have been revealed by the Spirit. And... uh, the, the end here, verses 14 through 16, a natural person does not understand, but only a spiritual person. Um, this concept, we've seen this idea of kind of natural, uh, you know, the worldly wisdom. Uh, here it's a natural person, spiritual person, uh, worldly wisdom, uh, perishing and saved. We see this kind of, this contrast going back and forth that, that Paul is referencing. Um, but uh, for those who... Well, the point I wanted to make here was the statement about the natural person does not understand. We've seen a few different statements, but what is a natural person? 
A natural person is somebody who puts, has their faith misplaced, has their faith in the world. They, they are thinking worldly thoughts. They are putting their minds, their, their, their logic is, is worldly. And they are, uh, they, they're not able to think about spiritual things when their mind is in that place. Can, are people only natural people and they can't ever do anything else? If you're a natural person, do you just stay that way? You choose differently, right? That, that's how you become a spiritual person is you, you are convinced and, and you believe and you choose to, to, to align yourselves and, and think, think on that way. And so it is a choice. It's a mindset. If you believe in Christ crucified, have hope in the resurrection, then you are a spiritual person able to judge and discern these things, this wisdom that Paul is talking about. All right, I believe that's our time. Thank you so much for your, for your participation. Um, we will pick up next week. Thank you.